to open up God's word and read that together now. The first passage we'll be reading is Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, which is on page 756 of the Red Bibles on the pew. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are, the, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. And the second reading is uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, which is not actually on page 802 as it says in the outline, but instead uh, 783. It's Matthew 2, 1 to 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem of Judah, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Well, today, uh, as Christians have done for at least the last 1,500 years, uh, we begin the season of Advent. Uh, the, the church has its own kind of calendar. Most years begin on January 1. Uh, church life begins on the fourth Sunday before Christmas. That's just how it is, so welcome to a new year. Happy New Year! Uh, there it is, Advent. Uh, Advent means uh, coming, uh, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a season of anticipation, uh, the way New Year's often are, actually, anticipation about what might happen a kind of leaning into something the way you might have done if you are in the crowd when someone really, really important was about to pass by, uh, you know, like um, a royal who just got recently engaged to a movie star. In fact, if you've got a royal and a movie star, that would make for a crowd. And if they're passing by, you'd be kind of on your tippy toes and leaning forward and pushing people and you want to see what's going on. 
experience and connect with it. That's what Advent is about, leaning. In the case of Advent, however, this straining to see is a straining to see both backwards and forwards. It's a straining back to remember something, to remember the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. That's what we typically know about this season, that it's Christmas, right? We remember backwards the birth of Jesus Christ. But Advent's about not just what's gone before, it's also about what will happen in the future, a straining forward to the time when he will come again. And there is a wonderful prayer uh, for Advent. Uh, it's called a, a collect, a sort of special prayer that really captures this backward-leaning and forward-leaning look. Let me, let me show you this prayer. Almighty God, it says, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armour of light. Okay, no, notice just right there uh, that there is a theme of readiness for battle here. Uh, the, the prayer speaks about armour. Uh, Advent is all about being ready for the king. And as we wait for him, we know that his business, and therefore our business, is a life and death battle of light against darkness. That's the deal. That's the game that we're in. Uh, you might think that the game you're in is just kind of making your way through life and doing the best you can and seeing how things go and having as many good times as you can afford. No, that's not your business. The business that we're in is a life and death battle of light against darkness. And so we pray, God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armour of light. But notice it goes on and it describes this backward-looking and forward-looking lean. Now, in the time of this mortal life, in which your son Jesus Christ came to us in great humility, that on the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Now, this prayer really captures the essence of this season of Advent, and it's really going to function in a way as the theme of our time over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas. We're going to not just do sort of secular Christmas, right, which is parties and fun, like, I mean, we'll do that, but we'll do more than that. We're not even going to just do a kind of quasi-religious Christmas, which is when we look back, we're going to do a proper Christian Christmas, a Christmas that recognises that the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is both in the past and in the future. And what this prayer recognises is that there is an incredible tension in that. A paradox. As we strain in our looking backwards, we see Jesus coming to us in great humility. Uh, the, the word uh, humility there really uh, means great weakness. Uh, you know the phrase, uh, sometimes you might say that someone uh, is in humble circumstances. Humble circumstances is just a kind of euphemistic way of saying that they're really poor. Humble doesn't mean sort of self-effacing and, oh, you know, no, 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 not me, it's you. Not, not that sort of characteristic. Humble here means weakness, frailty, poverty. And so we look back and see Jesus coming to us in great humility, great weakness, 
And yet at the same time, we strain forward in anticipation of his coming again with our confidence that the return of the king will be in glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead. And I want you tonight to feel that tension. I'm going to try and evoke it for you because actually the truth is you feel it all the time. Because the tension of this vision is a tension between humility, weakness, frailty and glorious majesty. And it kind of leads you to ask the question, which one is it, hey? Which one is it? Or perhaps it's a then and now kind of thing. That Jesus, and think about what you'd be saying if you said this, Jesus used to be humble. You know, you just don't want to go there, do you really? Jesus used to be humble, but now he's just glorious. Is that how things work? How is this one both humble and glorious and that's the journey we're going on over Advent? But notice, it's not just a tension that's out there in relation to Jesus, it's a tension that we feel almost all the time. I suspect that many of us feel sort of pushed around by life, uh, hopes disappointed and strength not quite up to task and ambitions thwarted. Uh, You don't have to spend too long in life getting pushed around like that and the stories you start telling yourself are all about defeat. How hopeless I am, how I can never get anything right, how nothing ever bounces my way. It's always someone else who takes the prizes in life, that, that he, that she is the one that always... And you just start telling us and these stories. Uh, you may not even be consciously aware all the time until you take a moment to stop and reflect on the stories that you tell yourself. For lots of us, the whole the time of this mortal life being one of great humility... Weakness is not that hard to get a handle on. We feel the great humility of this mortal life constantly. What's more, there's a subtle version of this which looks like strength, but is just overplayed weakness. That's the blusterer, uh, the, the demander, even the bully, whose primary experience is one of this kind of weakness but whose response to that is to overcompensate, to try to cover it up with gruff and tough and push their way round and through and over. But don't be fooled and don't fool yourself. It's the same sort of deal. It's just a different response. Lots of us know all about the time of this mortal life in great weakness. On the other hand, there are some people whose experience of life is quite different. Uh, They feel mostly on top of things because, well, actually, they are mostly on top of things. Uh, Their relationships are in good order. Their work situation moves from one level of engagement, compensation, responsibility, and recognition to the next. Uh, Their marriage and then their kids are clean, if not squeaky clean, and their house is spotless. I've never actually met one of these people, but I'm really sure that they must exist. Uh, Glorious majesty seems to be a pretty apt description about the way they carve their path through life 
pretty unscathed. And the joy of Advent, the power of Advent, is to speak with clarity into both of these situations. And of course, everything in between. Because none of us are at either extreme. We mostly actually bounce a little bit between the two, right? We bounce. And Advent speaks to us with the grace of the gospel. And it does so precisely by giving us this tension that we have noticed in the prayer. Uh, Micah the prophet is our teacher this evening. And as he experiences the tension in acute form, he cries out to God. And you see how we're going to break it open. Uh, The tension painfully announced, the tension wrongly resolved, and the tension fully lived. So first then, the tension painfully announced. Uh, The prophecy of Micah is one of the key sections of scripture that informs the gospel writers about the significance of the birth of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' birth uh, at one level takes place like pretty much any other birth. A a woman gives birth, right? I mean, it's not overly complicated. Uh, But it's, it's scripture that tells you not just the fact of that event, but the meaning and significance of it. Micah was a small town kid at the end of a seriously prosperous time for Jerusalem in the 8th century BC, the 700s BC. Uh, It was a really fabulous time, the mid-century particularly, for uh, Israel in general and Jerusalem in particular. It was a prosperity uh, that came, as it often does, at the expense of the smaller villages, including Micah's village. And so what Micah saw as he looked at the capital city's power politics was corruption and vice. But he also saw the emerging superpower of the age, the Assyrians, with their immensely brutal army. And Assyria was setting its sight on all points west, across the fertile crescent there in the Middle East, and all the way over to the Mediterranean, then down sweeping into Egypt. It was all there for Assyria to have. And Micah announces that corrupt Jerusalem will be judged. But that will not be the end of her because God will send a saviour. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 5. One who is to rule in Israel, verse 2, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. And the deliverance and victory that this ruler, this king, this coming king, you see, uh, will win, will be wonderful. Verse 4, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. See, there's majesty, power, authority. They shall live secure, his people, the people of this king. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. This is the kind of prophecy that you want to hear, right? This is, this is a really good news prophecy that the good guys, which of course by definition means us, will win. That right will conquer might. That the kind of ruler who uses power to feed his flock rather than fleece his flock will ultimately prevail. You, you feel that this is, this is a prophecy of glorious majesty, of a great coming king. And at the same time, did you hear another note that Micah strikes? 
But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah. It is also true that this great ruler to the ends of the earth, this good shepherd of the flock, is from utter obscurity, a product of Bethlehem, a town that makes the back of Burke seem like a thriving metropolis in comparison, one of the little clans of Judah, one of the little people. That's who this one is, one of the little people. And you might ask yourself, can anything good come from beyond the back of Burke? Do you feel the tension? Ruling the whole world. A nobody from nowheresville. Now, of course, this tension that Micah announces is heightened to near breaking point uh, by the one who claims to fulfill it. Jesus Christ uh, is introduced to us by Matthew in his gospel as, quote, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This Jesus Christ is seen by those who have eyes to see as the anointed one, uh, the, the one who's been sort of especially commissioned by God as his servant. That, that's in those days, the way you commissioned someone was by tipping a glass of oil on their heads. I'm glad things have changed, actually. A handshake is pretty good by me. Uh, but there you go. A, a, Anointed just means, that's what the word Messiah means, it's just what the word Christ means. Um, anointed one, commissioned by God to do a job. Uh, he's the Messiah, he's also of the royal house of David. A king, who's the descendant of a king, not just a king, but the king. And even more of the bloodline of Abraham to whom a son was promised who would sustain and guarantee the people of God. This is Jesus Christ. That's who just got born. But notice, born as the result of an unwed teenage pregnancy. A birth that took place in an animal shelter because no one would offer them hospitality in a hospitality-obsessed culture. And essentially, homeless, poor family who became asylum seekers. This obscure no one, yes, this obscure no one, is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Can I ratchet the tension up a little bit there? Enjoy trying to talk to people this Christmas about the significance of this Jesus won't you? As you tell them who he is. Don't let the familiarity of Christmas blur your grasp of it. It is almost absurd, this tension. And if the birth of Jesus accentuates it, don't you think that the death of Jesus takes it beyond breaking point? Here is the saviour of the world lifted up so as to draw all people to himself. That's how he puts it. He's going to be lifted up to draw all people to himself, crowned with many crowns. And what he means by that coronation is lifted up on a cross. That the most powerful moment since the creation of the world, because in it is the creation of the new world, 
is the blood-soaked death of an obscure, itinerant Jewish miracle worker crucified between two terrorists. You think Easter's a bit much to... Sorry, Christmas is a bit much to explain? You try Easter. That that... That is what glorious majesty and world rulership looks like. It is almost unbearable, isn't it? Especially when it touches us personally. Especially when your experience of weakness and disgrace and the great humility of this mortal life is just excruciating. And what can often seem like the easy option at that point is to resolve the tension. To resolve the tension. One way or the other. But point two, that would be wrong. You can resolve the tension in two ways, of course. On the one hand, you can resolve the tension in favour of weakness. You can give up on glory, at least in practice. To resolve the tension in favour of weakness is to say, well, that's all there is. This is the stance of the extreme pessimist whose view is that things can and will never go right. That people out there are only occupied with poor motives, that if something looks good and healthy and positive, then it must be a trick. For people who've resolved the tension towards weakness, there's a kind of sourness to their experience of life that recognises, oh yes, the time of this mortal life is one of great humility and that's all there is to say. They look only in one direction. They see only one thing. And it applies not only to things out there but also to themselves. That things will never go right for me, that I will never really get any better than I am now. Don't you dare ask me to change or to grow or to deepen because that stuff doesn't really happen. I am what I am. And that's all there is to it. This is resolved, the tension of Advent, right? The, the tension that we're noticing, the Christmas tension. But it comes at the cost of hopelessness. For some, that's a cost that's well worth paying because the alternative, the, the risk of disappointed hopes, which for the pessimist is the only kind there ever can be, disappointed hopes are the worst of all possible worlds. Trying and failing, hoping and then hurting, it's all just too much. And so there's a retreat. A retreat from others, a retreat from relationships, a retreat from the world. It's interesting that in verse 1 of chapter 5, Micah speaks of the walls that Israel has around her as though uh, the walls that she has erected against the world will protect her from Assyria. But of course, we know perfectly well that walls hem us in every bit as much as they seek to keep others out. And that self-protection by means of building walls will never work. It didn't work for Israel, verse 1b, with a rod. They, the Assyrians, will strike the ruler of Israel upon the cheek. Um, it's, it's an image of, of utter humiliation slapped across the cheek. Self-protection doesn't work for Israel. 
and it won't work for us either. So you can resolve the tension. That's one, I mean, it's a, it's a way you can just kind of make your path through life, isn't it? You can resolve the tension. You can just say, well, yes, the time of this present uh, and mortal life is one of weakness. That's how it goes. That's all there is. On the other hand, you can resolve the tension the other way, which is all about undiluted, glorious majesty. Uh, Martin Luther, uh, and the, you know, we're in the 500th year of the uh, Reformation, so every second sermon has to have a reference to Martin Luther, and so I'm, I'm on a roll. Uh, Martin Luther called everyone a theologian. It was a, it was a really great insight, actually. Uh, he said, everyone's a theologian uh, in the sense that everyone has a deep underlying conviction about and theory about life and God, ultimate values. Everyone has this. Everyone's a theologian. You don't have to go to some seminary to be a theologian. Everyone is. And he called this kind of person who resolves the tension this way in favour of undiluted, glorious majesty, he said, is a theologian of glory. This kind of person knows very well in life that there are winners and losers and is determined to be a winner. In the soul of theologians of glory is a demand that life treat you better, that people honour you more, that glorious majesty, in whatever form you define it, be yours in full measure. The thing about theologians of glory is there's often a whiff of desperation there, an inkling. They know that whatever it is that they have most recently achieved or acquired actually will never satisfy. That there's always more. There's always the next achievement, the next conquest, the next acquisition. They've just got to keep conquering. Now it's really important to see that at at root there's actually a very deep symmetry between these two approaches, this resolution of the tension by abandoning one pole or the other. They actually share the same underlying spiritual structure. Uh, You you look at it and you go, well, really? Um, They seem like you couldn't get two positions further apart than the withdrawn pessimist and the demanding winner. But actually, that's just at the surface. You, You go down deep and you see that both have adopted the same stance. Both have adopted the same position. It's the position of being their own Lord. It's the position of being their own Lord. The one who knows and understands and decides. Both, in their own way, are incredibly self-confident. Confident of themselves. That's apparent, I suppose, in the case of the theologian of glory, but can you see it in the extreme pessimist as well? The confidence there is that they know how things go. And what they know is that things go badly. Resolving the tension in either direction is actually a profound assertion of oneself as Lord. Now, of course, hardly any of us resolve the tension purely at either of these two extremes. None of us live quite like that. But I wonder if it's true to say that all of us will lean somewhat in one direction or the other. 
And the invitation of Advent is to recognise the way in which you lean as you experience the tension of this life. Of your hopes and yearnings and desires that things work well and that you have mastery of your circumstances. And at the same time, the pain of when things don't work well. Advent says, don't resolve the tension. Hold it. Live it. Let it be. Point three. What do I mean when I say live this tension, hold it, rather than resolve it? Notice that the fundamental move that uh, Micah makes is to look outside himself. What Micah does in his situation of imminent threat by the superpower of the age, um, you know, the Assyrians who just trashed the entire known world at the time, the headed, headed the way of Jerusalem, Micah looks away from himself and his own resources to another. To one he describes as who is from of old, from ancient days, the one who will stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord. In other words, what Micah turns to is hope from outside. Hope from outside. And the point is that that is the only way that you can ever actually live this tension instead of resolving it with hope in someone from outside. It's the only way you'll be able to hold the reality that the time of this mortal life is one of frailty and failure and weakness and suffering. But not let that turn you inward upon yourself in self-protection at best and self-pity at worst. And at the same time, it's only by turning outward in hope that you'll ever be able to accept the good things in life to you as gifts. The gifts of God's grace rather than the entirely expected outcome of your own obvious excellence, ability and worthiness. Hope in one who comes from outside means that you can experience the blessings of this life without turning you inward upon yourself in smugness and self-righteousness. And it's the only thing that will save you from that turn inward to yourself, either in self-protection and self-pity or in smugness and self-righteousness. Do you see how this hope of Advent works in our hearts? The coming of the Messiah whose victory is over so much more than the Assyrians over sin and death itself And yet it comes by being born in a stable and being crucified on a cross. This hope will show itself, it will sort of demonstrate itself in two uh, fundamental postures. On the one hand, uh, when this hope burns in your heart, there will be comfort and thanksgiving even in trials and sufferings. There'll be comfort 
Because what hope like this does for you is assure you that there will be an end. That there is one who is on your side even if the whole world is against you. And that comfort will morph into thanksgiving, uh, not thanksgiving for the trials and sufferings. No, this is not masochism. Rather, it's a posture of the heart toward thanks, a knowledge of the soul that your times, even these times, even these times are in God's hands. And that if his power is sufficient to bring the Messiah from a stable and eternal life from a cross, then you can trust him with thanks even in the midst of this trial, even in the experience of suffering and failure and setback. And of course, when you, when you sort of work a spiritual logic like this, you can actually run it back the other way. It's, it's worth asking yourself as we sort of land this reflection on Micah's prophecy, how easily are you thrown off your spiritual balance? How easily are you thrown off your spiritual balance when circumstances rob you of comfort and shrivel up thankfulness in you so that your circumstances simply come to dominate your horizon? Friends, hear the promise of the coming of the Lord. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And as you know him, you will live secure, Micah says, in hope. For he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be the one of peace. Let this hope work its comfort. Don't pretend. Don't deny. But second, when you lean away from yourself in hope to the one who is to come, there'll be at the same time a humility and compassion when your life circumstances go well. Humility because you know that everything you have you've received as a gift. It all comes from him. And then that humility likewise will morph into a compassion for those for whom the toast always just seems to land jam side down. Whose pattern just seems always to be to find the hardest path through life. Whose experience is day after day full of the mortality of this life. Hope in another will take the form of compassion because you know that in the end you are not very different from those people. No matter how well things are working out for you right now. That your abilities are that mu not that much more excellent. That what you have is not because you are any more worthy. And again you can, you can reverse the spiritual logic of this. To the degree that humility flowing into compassion is not actually the impulse of your soul. It means that your hope has shifted from the one who is to rule 
to far too great an overconfidence in yourself. Hear the joyous hope of Advent. Allow it to well up inside you. Let it enable you to live in the tension, to hold it, to not resolve it. And allow this hope to overflow to others in thankfulness and compassion. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephatha, who are one of the little clans of Judah, the little people, from you shall come forth for me one who is to rule. Amen.